I was reminded during that song, which I've listened to, I don't know, hundreds of times in the last few weeks. You know, the time that you're glad you built your life on Jesus is when the storms have come. You don't get to build them then. That's when they, that's, that's when they get tested. And so I pray that you'll just be reminded of that. I thought that might be a sermon one day, but we will... Uh, We'll stick with where we're going today. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6. I mentioned to you weeks ago that I knew when we were in John chapter 4 that I was to be preaching through or in John chapter 6, and the Lord just led us straight through chapter 5 to get there. So today we begin this journey in John chapter 6 as we continue our journey that began in John chapter 4. Turn to John chapter 6, verse 1. It's on page 1,200. And 27 in the Pew Bible, if you're using that, 1,227, John chapter 6, just go to verse 1. I can remember being in school, and we're learning a lot about this every day, the law of supply and demand. This is a simple law, but it is the basis for all things related to economics. You probably know that when demand exceeds supply, prices go up. And when supply exceeds demand, prices go down. And with gas at $4 a gallon, we understand economics pretty well right now, better each day. So how does the law of supply and demand factor into our time this morning? Well, let's just read along and find out as we talk about that together. Stand with me. We're going to read from John chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. It says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little." One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number, about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to the, his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Thank you. You may be seated. Keep your scripture open. If you're a note taker, you're going to want to write down a few things in the next few minutes. And so the back of your call to action is there for you to be able to take notes on if you desire to do that. That way your notes go home and so does your call to action or your call to action goes home and then therefore your notes go with you as well. 
This passage, the feeding of the 5,000, is a very familiar story to each of us. It is the only miracle of Jesus that is actually recorded in all of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, let me, for note takers, let me just tell you that when I was studying John chapter 6, I recognized that the feeding of the 5,000 was in the other Gospels, and so I've went and studied them too. Let me just give you the scriptures there in case you want to study in four ways and see the whole story come together. It's found in Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 21. It's Matthew 14, 13 to 21. It's also found in Mark chapter 6, verses 31 to 44. And it's found in Luke chapter 9, verses 10 to 17. And of course, it's found in John chapter 6, as we just read together. Now, I allowed the other three uh, gospel writers to have influence on the story today. So I've studied John chapter 6, but I've also allowed those other three passages as I just gave to you to help um, flesh out, fill out the story for us as best that we can. And I encourage you to take these four passages of Scripture this week and spend time in them. Read them in the light of what God will share with us this morning, and uh, I'm sure it'll be an encouragement to you this week as you move forward uh, in that. So let's start in John chapter one, uh, 6, verse 1. It says that Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee. Notice it said, after these things. Now, after these things, now we're not going to go back and relive these things, but these things are the things that John had recorded in John chapter 5, the things that we've been talking about for a number of weeks. It says that after these things that he crossed the Sea of Galilee. Now, I need us to recognize that he did not walk around. He did not walk on. He crossed the Sea of Galilee, which tells us that Jesus got in a boat. Now, if you go and you read the other gospel accounts, it literally tells us that he got into a boat and crossed the Sea of Galilee. And it goes that upon arriving on the other side of the lake, verse 3 says that Jesus went up on the mountain and was there with his disciples. Now, in one of the gospel passages, Jesus had sent the disciples out in groups of two and had given them power and given them encouragement and told them to go and share the gospel. And just as a side note, he also told them not to take anything with them. You guys are familiar with this story, and if not, you can go look that up. And they have returned back, and one of the things that led Jesus to take them across the Sea of Galilee to take them up the mountain to spend time with them was probably so they could rest, was probably so that they could debrief and spend some time sharing. Have you ever gone and done something you couldn't wait to get back and tell those people that you love about what happened? I can just imagine, and Scripture teaches that, that the disciples came back all excited about all the things that Jesus sent them to do that they were able and effective to do with God's help while they were gone. So Jesus had gone over the lake and up the mountain, and that's where he is. And verse 2 tells us that the great multitude followed him there. Verse 5 says that Jesus looked up and saw that great multitude coming up to him. Now, there's two really cool teaching points 
It's really hard for me to read God's Word without stopping a lot. And if you're able to sit down and just read God's Word and never really stop, I think you're reading too fast. I encourage you to stop. And, and when God pricks your heart, when God challenges you or shows you something, stop and sort of run that one down to the ground just a little bit. Uh, it was a few Wednesday nights ago, Tim taught on Wednesday night, and he said as he started studying in Matthew, he would have to stop and then go here, and then he would have to stop and go here. Studying God's Word is like an archaeological dig. You sometimes have to stop where you find something and dig down in it. And so let me show you something or something that touched me, but two really cool points just right here. Number one, let me start you with a question. How bad do you want to be with Jesus? I mean, how bad? I hope I'm phrasing that. You get the point. Do you have a desire, a driving, compelling desire to be with Jesus? Because in Mark chapter 6, verse 33, part of this from another gospel, it says this, but the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to them. Now, I want to stop right here for just a second. I've been to this place. Kevin and Sharon, we've been to this place, the Sea of Galilee. And Angela, right there, I just found you for the first time. We've been to this place. And the Sea of Galilee is not this huge sea like you would think about the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. We go to the beach and you just see, 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 and you can't see anything else. It's just water, water, water. No, the Sea of Galilee is actually a lake. It's, it's, it's a smaller body of water. And we crossed the Sea of Galilee, and in order to cross the Sea of Galilee on a boat, it's between four and five miles, depending upon the exact departure and arrival locations to get across there. And you can see that far when you're there. And it goes on to say that the Scriptures, that these people wanted to see Jesus so much that when they saw him get in the boat and leave, they're going, hey, I know where he's going. Because see, docks don't just pop up everywhere. There are places that you arrive. And Scripture said in Mark chapter 6, it said that they did not get in a boat and follow him. It said that they ran on foot. And it said that they ran on foot and got there before he did. If you do the math, and you can see this too, because when I was standing on this shore of the Sea of Galilee, and I could see that shore of the Sea of Galilee, what I could also see is all of the shore that went all the way around. Ten miles. It's at least ten miles that these people had to run. So while Jesus took a boat across the Sea of Galilee between four and five miles, these people who desired to see him ran 10 miles to get there. These people were not going to allow that sea, that big body of water, to keep them from Jesus. And here's where I was convicted. How often do we allow the smallest things to keep us from Jesus? Schedule, feelings, you name it. I'm going to, I've been praying for you in this service that the Spirit of God would show you things in your life that have derailed your intentions of spending time with Jesus. When we see the example and the passion that these people had 
that they would actually run to be where Jesus was. What effort will you expend to be with Jesus? Because I'll tell you this, I believe it's true, and I believe you won't have any trouble agreeing with me. When you have an overwhelming desire to seek Jesus, you'll set aside other things that are not as important. You will learn to understand what those things are, and you will value your time with Jesus above all things. And when you do, you will be better for it. You will be different. So ask God, Lord, what things are separating me from being with you? These people ran around a sea and climbed up a mountain just to be with Jesus. How bad do you want to be with Jesus? I told you right here in this moment that I found two cool points that really struck a chord with me. That was one of them. The second one is that Jesus, it says that he receives the people. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use the same word to describe Jesus' feelings about the people that he receives. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use the word, and Jesus had compassion on them. Compassion, I looked up, is defined as a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another, catch this, who is stricken by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. So I just want to break that definition down just a little bit. Did you note the word accompanied? It means to go along with something else. And the word alleviate means to make something easier, to make something less, or to eliminate it. So let me give you just a fleshed out definition of compassion. It is the feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune that comes along with a strong desire to make the issue go away so that the suffering ends. Jesus looked at these people and their hunger for him and their need for him, and he had compassion. When I define compassion that way, that makes it a verb. It's an action word. Mark chapter 6, verse 34 Fleshed that out, it said that Jesus saw them as sheep needing a shepherd. Jesus knew that he was the answer to their needs. How do you see people? Many times when we look at people, they may appear to be an interruption in our plans or our schedule or our day. But perhaps because of this challenge in Scripture right now, we can ask God to teach us to see people as Jesus sees people with compassion. That we understand that in that day, Jesus said they are as if they are sheep gone astray, needing a shepherd. And Jesus knew he was the answer. That we can also understand that the people that come into our lives perhaps are sheep who need a shepherd. And that shepherd is Jesus. Just imagine how that God helped me to see people as Jesus sees them will change how you look at people, how you interact with people, how you engage and share Jesus with them. Did I mention that on April the 16th, we're having on campus a Easter extravaganza. We are hoping to see many, many people that are not us, 
here with us. And one of the greatest needs that we're going to have are people that are us to be here with them, ready to engage them so that they can know that they're cared for and that they're loved. Yes, by us, but more importantly, by Jesus. Amen. So if you want to know what all what all's going on on that day, well, I just gave you the nutshell. We're going to help people know that Jesus loves them. And we need you here to help that. So it says that Jesus sees the people. Those are my two cool points. You're going, Jeff, that's a great sermon. Just stop right there. And I tried, but God said no. For starters, it's only 1042. What will they think? But for seconds, God's word is so rich and so deep that we just want to drive down in it just a little bit more. It says that Jesus receives the people and he teaches the people. And Jesus must have taught the people for a long while because scripture records in these gospels that it became late in the day. And Matthew and Mark and Luke all share the same details. That the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, it's getting late. You need to tell all of the people to go so that they can all get some food. You know, we just happen to be across the lake and up a mountain. There's probably not a food court or a food truck right by there. So these people are going to have to leave. And Scripture's already told us that there's at least 5,000 men. And we need to understand that 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 is probably close to 20,000 people. Because here's what I'll learn. And men in this room who are at the men's breakfast this morning, here is the spiritual truth for you men. And if you weren't here, men, it's still a spiritual truth for you. If 5,000 men are chasing after Jesus, I guarantee you that they brought their families. I don't know a man who can seek Jesus and have a family and not have them seek Jesus. That's just a good, I, I didn't even write that one down until just now. Actually, I didn't even write it down. It's on my heart, though. Men, you have a role. Right there it is. Lead your people to Jesus, your people, your family. But they've come late in the day, and he says, Jesus, you need to send them all away so that they can go get some food. They're probably starving. You know what that meant? The disciples were probably starving. Isn't it funny how we start thinking of other people's hunger needs when our belly starts grumbling? So the disciples are going, Jesus, it's late, and I'm hungry. But they put it in a spiritual term. Jesus, you need to tell them all to go away so they can get something to eat. You're going, Jeff, they probably didn't think that. Well, you probably did in that situation. I probably would have. And Jesus says the same thing to the disciples in every one of these gospel accounts. It's almost an identical quote. Jesus said these six words. You give them something to eat. He didn't care what time it was. He didn't care where they were. He said, you give them something to eat. I thought of Jesus. He's already called them in Mark chapter 6, sheep needing a shepherd. And then when I read Jesus telling the disciples, you give them something to eat, he said, remember when after the resurrection and the disciples had gone back to fishing and Jesus shows up on the beach and then they see Jesus and then they go and this is Peter's opportunity to be reunited with Christ because of his denial. 
And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know I love you. Three times. And Jesus said what? Feed my sheep. And so I was reading this feeding of the 5,000. I'm going, how consistent Jesus is. He sees us as sheep. He sees the people needing. And he says, and those of you who know, feed them. Take care of them. And in the book of John, Jesus asks Philip a question. He says this in verse 5. Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Verse 7, I'll get back to verse 6, but verse 7, Philip stated that even 200 denarii would not be enough to feed everyone even a little. Did you know that Jesus asked the where question and Philip gave the how much response? That's different. Jesus can probably say, Philip, that's not what I asked you. But what it tells me is, is that Philip knew that there was a cost that could be paid in order to feed the people even a little. And if 200 would only give them a little, then 400 would have given them a little twice. And maybe 600 would have given them plenty. But Philip knew, he said, well, there's a way. But surely you wouldn't want us to spend that. But verse 6 says that Jesus was testing Philip. That's important. Do you know that Jesus will put you in position with people who are sheep, astray, needing a shepherd, needing to know about Jesus, that are hungry with every need they have, and he's going to put you in a position and he's going to say, feed them, do something. And it's going to be a test. How are you going to do? How have you done this week? You see, I believe the Spirit of God, when we know we should do something, if we're a child of God, I think we, we, the Spirit of God leads us to know that what we're supposed to do. And then we have a big decision to make. Are we going to do it? Now, I don't know that Philip didn't have the money. We don't know that they didn't have the money. He just said, Jesus... That'd take over 200 denarii, 200 days' wages just for everybody to have a little bit. He's saying, surely you wouldn't want me to, to do that. You know, my answer is, is God would probably spend about anything for somebody to come to know Jesus, wouldn't he? Scripture said that God did spend everything. For God so loved the world that he gave. His only begotten Son. Do you know there is nothing more priceless? Nothing. And God gave it. So does He expect us to sometimes do something that's obedient to Him to help people come to know Him that could cost us something? Absolutely. And if you can get through this life without following Jesus costing you something, you're likely not following Jesus. Because Jesus taught many, many times there is a cost to following Him. Do you know that the cost of following Jesus that is financial is probably one of the easiest costs we'll ever endure? There are so many other ways of following Jesus that are harder. But Jesus asked the where question, and Philip answered the how much question. 
That's a supply and demand kind of issue. That's how my mind started thinking. Philip was looking at his ability, what he could not get, how much he did not have, and how much it would cost. And I believe Jesus will put us in testing positions often to see what we've learned, not about ourselves, but about him. God has a history of testing his people, drawing them purposefully to a greater understanding of who he is. So verse 8 says that Andrew had been searching the crowd and found one lad who had five loaves and two fishes. This is, this is a phenomenal thing. While this is going on, Andrew's probably heard Jesus say, you give them something to eat, and Andrew walks out in the crowd, perhaps, and starts going, do you have anything? Do you have anything? Let's see what all we have. And Andrew comes back to Jesus, and he brings them five loaves and two fish. Now, he says that there's a lad here who has five loaves and two fish. Now, for starters, mom of the year, right? Mom sent this lad, which means dad's probably not there. Mom may not be there, but she said, if you're going to find Jesus, don't go. Don't want you to go hungry. Mom of the year, she sent him food. It's a great Mother's Day reminder right there. Moms make a big difference in how we live for Jesus. But notice that this lad, in a crowd of 20,000 people, came to Andrew and he said, I've got this. You know that's how we're supposed to come to Jesus as a child? I've got this. Jesus, you can have my five loaves and two fish. The lad didn't question its value. He just felt compelled to give all he had to Jesus. That is such a great spiritual reminder for each of us that Jesus expects what he has given us for us to be willing to give it back to him. Hmm. That's a pretty strong reminder to myself. Do you know, I started thinking, in a crowd this size, there's likely at least one other person who had food. Wouldn't you imagine? If you were searching the hillside, 5,000 families worth, and only one boy's mama packed his lunch? No, there were probably people who had food, but you know what? We don't get to hear about them because you know what they did? They kept it. They didn't share it. They didn't offer it. They just kept it. Supply and demand. They're thinking, I'm not letting this go. I'll never have enough for me. We don't even get to study about them, but God made a good point right there to all of us, didn't he? Supply and demand. The lad said, whatever I have, you can have, Jesus. The crowd said, whatever I have, I'm holding on to. And Andrew's response, just think about this. He went out looking. We found this lad, five loaves and two fishes. And, Pete, and Andrew comes to him and he said, Jesus, I have found five loaves and two fishes. And I'm going, finally, finally, somebody gets it. Somebody understands that it's not about how much, it's about who we give it to. Andrew was so close to getting Jesus. He was almost there 
and almost understood that Jesus is the king of supply and demand. Amen? Amen. But the problem happened in his life as it did in mine many times and as it does in yours, perhaps. Andrew kept talking. He said, Jesus, I have five loaves and two fish. And right before we go, way to go, Andrew. Andrew says, but what's that? What's that among so many? He kept talking. In the hands of God, I'm sorry, in the hands of man, a lot seems like a little. In the hands of God, a little is always much. I read this quote this week. God does not lead us to see a need unless it be in his mind to use us to meet that need, be it by prayer or otherwise. When you see a need, maybe that's an opportunity for you to check out your loaves and your fish. What do you have to give? Verse 10 Jesus has them sit down, 5,000 men, it says. Puts them in groups of 50s. One gospel says 50s and 100s. And Jesus did this. He gave thanks for what, he gave thanks to God for what they had, and he began to distribute the food. Verse 11 said that they had as much as they wanted. Each account, when you go back and look at it, story contains that they all ate. This was not some kind of men's breakfast where we weren't sure we were going to have enough biscuits, so the pastor and Kenny chose not to eat so everybody else could. No, this is an event where there was more than plenty, and all ate. And Scripture goes on to say not only did they all eat, it says that they were all filled. The disciples could only imagine giving everyone a little. Jesus, in John chapter 10, verse 10, says that I came that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus does not seek. This may sound sacrilegious. I think it, 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 it worked for me. But here's my statement. It says that Jesus does not seek to give us snacks to hold us over to another time. Jesus did not come to give us snacks. Jesus said, I came to give you all. Jesus held back nothing. Jesus reserved nothing. Jesus gave it all to us. He will take care of you, all of it. Philippians 4.19 said, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Verse 12 said that when they were filled, again, when everyone had all they desired, all they could hold, all they needed, Jesus is the king of supply and demand because we only had five loaves and two fish. Verse 12, Jesus told them to gather the leftovers so that nothing is lost. Here, I couldn't move past this statement. Nothing is lost. Church, can I tell you that Jesus wants none to perish without him? None. None lost. We could say, well, Jesus is just frugal when it comes to the resources. Perhaps, but I think that would be limiting Jesus' impact. I think the reality is, is that's another value for us to understand that God doesn't waste anything and he doesn't see anything as insignificant, not even you and the challenges that you're facing. 
All. All are important. Nothing is lost, but all should come to God through Christ Jesus. You know, that's a good reason to have an Easter extravaganza. It's a reason to send out 5,000 invites to people. It's a reason because all are important. Do you know that there are people in our community? They don't feel important right now. They don't feel loved. They're lost. We, we know where Jesus is. Verse 13, 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, I want us to dig just a little bit right here. I'm going to read. You just stay right there in uh, John chapter 6. I'm turning to Mark chapter 6. So this is where the feeding of 5,000 is, but this is prior to that. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 7, I've alluded to it already. But it said, And he called the twelve to himself, this is Jesus, and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he also said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that place, and whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. I alluded to the fact that they had now come back to see Jesus, and they told Jesus, Jesus, this happened, and this happened. I mean, can you just imagine, have you ever had somebody come so excited to you to tell you what's happened in their life that they just can't really take a breath, they just keep talking and talking and talking, and they're so excited? I bet that's what happened when Jesus was hearing from the disciples all that he had done. Summarize, Jesus had sent them out empty-handed, depending on him, and they had gone and seen much success. And you're going, Jeff, but we were talking about the 12 baskets of leftovers. You're right. Let me encourage you with this point. In the first century, all Jews would carry a basket with them wherever they went. They carried their belongings. They carried their food. It was used for begging, collecting. And I believe that these 12 baskets that Jesus has told them to go collect were the 12 empty baskets that the disciples had in their possession. You see, we don't see where they said, hey, go to Home Goods and pick up 12 baskets. They didn't even have food. There's no, red, there's no way that they took time to go to Lowe's. These baskets were already with them. And there's a great point right here. Since they had just returned from a trip where Jesus told them not to take much stuff, but to depend upon God to provide, their baskets were likely empty. And in another act of compassion, Jesus fills their personal baskets with what they need to take care of themselves. Now, did I draw a conclusion that I think it's reasonable? There's a great lesson to be learned there when it comes to compassion. Here's the definition I gave you of compassion earlier. Compassion is a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune that comes along with a strong desire to make the issue go away so that the suffering ends. 
Not only did Jesus have compassion on those who needed to know him, he had compassion on those he used to go to them. Without Christ, demand always exceeds supply, and our cry in life is not enough. Philip first thought about cost, not about Christ. Andrew first found, and then he doubted. When we do not factor Jesus into the equation of life, whatever we attempt to fill our lives with will not be enough. It will never satisfy. Remember I talked about how Jesus was testing Andrew. Do you know Jesus was testing Andrew and he was probably hoping for a response like this. Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know where we'll get this kind of food. I don't know where we'll get the money to get it. I don't know how it's going to come about but I do know that this is no problem for you. I saw you turn water into wine. I know that you can do anything. That kind of faith is what God is seeking in our lives. Where we go, I don't know what you're getting ready to do, but I know that you're getting ready to do something. So I will be ready and faithful and obedient to be involved. Perhaps you have a need today for which you see no apparent supply. Perhaps this need is physical, emotional, material, spiritual. A lot can be made of your little when you get Christ involved. You see, with Christ, supply always exceeds demand. And the cry with Jesus is, there's always more than enough. Jesus miraculously multiplied what was given to him, and there was plenty. But a final note, Jesus only multiplied what was given to him. Now, Jeff, are you talking about our money? Not necessarily, but yes. Are, we talk, are you talking about our loaves and our fish? Yes. Whatever resources, whatever insight, whatever experience, whatever opportunity that you have been given, if you give it to Christ, He can and will multiply it for His glory. Amen? The boy gave. When everything made it seem too small and not enough, just imagine this boy. You're in the crowd. You don't have any food. You're hungry. You've been being taught by Jesus all day. And you, you're starting to recognize. You hear the mumble. You go, okay, there's a problem. There's no food. And you see this little boy walk up with his little basket. And you see him hand the disciples five loaves and two fish. And you probably say something like this. Isn't that so sweet? That boy's giving everything he can to Jesus. He doesn't even know that that's crazy. That that's, you can't do anything with that. How sweet in a condescending manner. But we do it all the time. We see people and we think, no, it can't happen. Or even what little bit God wants to do in us, we downplay it. 
that can't be it. God, we can't, you can't use this. When this boy trusted Jesus, it tapped into the eternal resources of heaven. Again, 12 baskets left over. Now, I also thought there was very, something very reasonable, and I think that everything you'll see with God. Do you notice that they have five loaves and two fish? And unless I'm misreading something, they collected 12 loaves of bread, or 12 baskets full of bread. No leftover fish. Because that would have gotten stinky on the way out, right? God is that thoughtful. He doesn't miss a detail in your life. How bad do you want Jesus? What will you do when that time comes? Will you be faithful? Or will you doubt? Church, we've been given such opportunity to be used by God. Amen? You have been given great opportunity to be used by God. And I say that, and the church, we get five amens, and they're not really strong. Now, I'm not trying to get you to scream at me. I'm just trying to get you to understand that what we're talking about this morning is truth. It is personal. It is about you, and God wants you to run for Him, climb for Him, and yield your life to Him so that He can use it in a miraculous, supernatural way. I've been telling you for weeks, God's ready to do something big. I'm trying to get my life in order. I want to encourage you to get your life in order. I'm trying to put my life right out there so God can use it. I want to encourage you to do the same thing.